Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hi, thanks for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. Today, I had a great conversation with Heather Manna. She's a managing partner at MMG Mortgages here in Calgary, a two-time award-winning brokerage. Heather's also a real estate investor and has incredible knowledge on the financing side. You'll definitely enjoy this show and want to reach out to Heather for any additional questions you may have. My big takeaway from my conversation with Heather is how talking to a knowledgeable broker with real estate investing experience makes all the difference. Heather shares some great options for real estate investors looking for financing to do property flips. Enjoy. Morning, Heather. Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. So just to start off, I just wondering if you could just tell me something about yourself, how you got into uh, mortgage broking. Sure. So I guess back when I was about 19 or 18, I started just kind of off of a whim at the bank and quickly worked my way up into lending and realized that mortgaging was something that I was pretty passionate about. So I went on to be a mobile mortgage specialist at the bank and I did that for years and I realized that there was limits at the bank. And so decided to go on the brokerage side and that was just over 10 years ago. And then shortly after myself and my business partner, Jackie, we started our own brokerage and kind of the rest is history. So I've been in the industry for almost 20 years. And honestly, I can't see myself going anywhere else and kind of lucky to fall into this. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. It must be challenging managing your own brokerage. It's uh, MMG Mortgages, right? Is where you're you at. Got it. Yeah. And you're a managing partner and you guys won two awards, right? So you had the 2020 and 2021 Brokerage of the Year. So Alberta Brokerage of the Year Award, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, we're one of the larger like independent brokerages in Canada and uh, the largest in the prairies for Mortgage Center Canada. So we do do a pretty high volume of business through the brokerage. Everybody's pretty seasoned for the most part. And so usually when someone's working with someone from our team, they've got a pretty good handle on kind of all ends of the mortgaging and financing. And the awards that we had won and been nominated for were for customer service, just for the whole kind of client experience. So it was pretty exciting for the brokerage. But yes, it's busy just doing day-to-day mortgage brokering and then being a managing partner of the brokerage as well. Yeah, I bet. So let's dive in. I've got a ton of questions here. We may not get through them all, but we'll just start with, if you could just kind of explain the difference between purchasing an investment property, if someone's going to purchase it in their personal name versus a holding company name. So yeah, some of the mortgage related information for that. So this is a super good question and it comes up a lot more recently. So There's not as many options for somebody who wants to purchase a property in a holding company or a business name. So technically speaking, when you're buying a property in a hold co, it's essentially commercial lending for lack of better words, but yet it's on a residential property. So a lot of the banks that do commercial financing, they really only want to offer commercial lending on commercially zoned properties. So it is a bit of an oddball when we actually finance a commercial mortgage or something under a holding company or business name to buy a residential property. So there's not very many options. The big difference is, I guess, number one would be, say, risk. 
So let's say that somebody purchases a property where they're going to rent it at, whether it's short-term, long-term rental, and they don't want to have the property under their own personal name. So suppose that that individual could get sued by the tenant for whatever reason. It's often as a risk perspective, good to have it under the business name or a holding company, not your personal name, so that somebody would be suing the business and not you or your personal assets or other properties. So that's one difference. There's also like income tax differences. So as far as capital gains or taxes when you sell, as far as the profits are concerned. But in terms of the financing, so if someone's buying a property under a holding company, because there's fewer options, there's also a little bit more red tape and there could be some additional costs involved. So you really need to weigh the options on, is this purchase better to buy under your personal name or under the holding company? So if you have to open up a hold co, there's costs to open that up with the registries. There is, you know, yearly accounting fees and bookkeeping fees. So there's those costs to consider as well, because you wouldn't be reporting that under your personal income taxes. And then on the financing end, a lot of the banks, they'll actually charge a fee. So it could be just a small admin fee, say $750. It could be a 1% fee. So 1% based on the mortgage amount. So for example, if it's 500,000 mortgage, that's a $5,000 fee. So there could be that fee involved. And then oftentimes the rates are different as well. So the rates could be slightly surcharged buying under a holding company versus a personal name. So you really have to outweigh and really run the numbers and do your own performa to see, does this make more sense for me from a risk perspective, taxation perspective, and financing perspective to buy this personally or to buy it under a holding company? So I think there's definitely pros and cons to both of them. And it really depends on if you're, I think, a one-time investor. So just buying one or two properties, or if this is something that you know you want to get into more long-term and hold a multitude of rental properties. Is there a difference on the, so yeah, deposit required? So for down payment, yes, there can be. So some banks will ask for say 25% down instead of the minimum, which is generally 20% down. So it really depends on the bank. That being said, we still can do 20%. It's just fewer options available. Okay. And then for interest rate, is there like a typical differential? Like if it's a commercial loan, it's going to be say X amount? different? So, yeah, if we're talking about actual, say, commercially zoned properties, totally different. You actually really can't even quote interest rates on commercial mortgages because the rates are based on the bond yields that day. So typically you can get a range of what it would be, but it is higher, but that's in a different ballgame. So that would be actual commercially zoned property. So say buying a building, a bay, that kind of thing. If you're buying a rental property in your personal name, then the interest rates are always surcharged anyway. So for instance, if I was going out looking for an owner-occupied home versus buying an investment property, the rates are surcharged. So I would say give or take, it depends on you know the month and the time, but give or take about 0.2 to 0.3% of a difference. That would be higher, um, higher to buy a rental property. If you're buying a property under a holding company, again, it's going to be bank dependent some of the banks will charge the same interest rate. So again, call it that 0.2, 0.3% difference. Whereas the other ones will actually surcharge it by say 0.5, 0.6%. So that would be a bit of a range. It really just depends on the lender. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So what's some alternative? We can just talk about some alternative lending options, say for a property investor. So we usually like to determine it or I guess, break down alternative lending kind of as follows. So there's really three types of 
mortgaging available or lending available for someone. There's your A type, so your traditional bank financing, that's the charter banks, the credit unions, the monoline lenders, that's your you know, good credit, A lending, nothing fancy, right? So just very easily qualified, call it that. Maybe some gray, but for the most part, pretty easily qualified. Then there's the B lending, also known as the alternative lending. And I would say there's less red tape for qualifying. So as an example, really good product for self-employed people, a little bit more easy going on, say, qualifying for investors, and I can touch on that. And then there's also the private lending. So private lending would be then call it like your C lending category. So that is very, very low documents for qualifying. Your interest rates will be higher. You might need more down payment to go that direction. So they don't always have to follow certain government criteria for financing for private lending. It's usually very short term to kind of get you in and get you out with an exit strategy involved. So the alternative lending, which is that mid-range, a little bit higher interest rates than the traditional banking side, they're all risk-based lenders. So the reason that they charge a higher interest rate is because really they're taking on a bit higher risk. So higher risk for someone who say is self-employed, who maybe they don't show much on their income tax returns. So they're keeping a lot of income in their business, not showing much personally. So if we take that individual to most of the traditional banks, those banks will not usually or typically look at what your business has earned. They're really just laser focused on what that personal T1 general or notice of assessment says. The alternative lender, they'll just dive a little deeper. So they'll look at it as more of a holistic approach. They can review your bank statements and look at the deposits into your accounts and tally those up to determine your true income. You know, take away a little bit for expenses or overhead, but they just get more creative. And so they can provide more options. A lot of our investor clients are also self-employed. So we often have to go on the alternative route for our investor clients. Now, the negative to that is that because the interest rates are higher, mortgage payments can be higher, but it can also be a little easier for say somebody who's looking to purchase a flip. Most of the alternative lenders don't have restrictions on someone buying a property to specifically flip. Whereas if we put that mortgage at a traditional bank, a mortgage gets funded, say, on September 1st, and then it's sold and off the books on November 1st, those properties get flagged at a lot of the banks. And those banks might not want to lend to that client anymore. So traditional banks want that mortgage on the books longer term. They generally don't like to finance flips. Alternative lenders just get a little bit more creative with their approach. You can usually qualify for higher amounts. They have extended debt servicing ratios. So there's lots of different options. So if someone's coming to get, say, a pre-approval, to buy an investment property, I think it's really important for a mortgage broker to dive in a little bit deeper and really see what's most important to that investor. Is it the purchase price amount that they're looking at, or is it the rate or a combination of both? Because we can always provide two different options to that person, qualifying on the A side versus qualifying on the alternative side. So on the alternative side, is there still like a fixed rate or a variable rate option? And what do you find uh, investors are going after or preferring? Good question. So generally the alternative lending is fixed rates. There are a few banks that do offer variable, but it's usually fixed rates. They're typically shorter terms. So say one to three year terms, the most popular on the alternative side. We're seeing right now, most people go for the variable interest rates. And this is not just on the investor side. This is really across the board. This is even with the recent prime rate increases that we've had. And we've just had some pretty big increases, but we're still seeing most people go that direction. Part of the reason is because given the current government stress test, 
someone can qualify for a higher mortgage right now going on the variable side than fixed. That's not always the case, but it is right now. That's one piece. The second piece is that the interest rates are lower. That means your mortgage payments are lower. So the affordability level is there. But a lot of investors are also kind of trying to play the market a little bit. So with a variable, you can lock in at any time during the term without penalty. So a lot of people really just think, okay, I'll lock in if rates go higher. But what happens when inflation cools and the rates go down? You can also lock in. So a lot of people who might be pretty savvy or really understand the rate market or the bond yields and the overnight lending rate, that is their strategy. So we're seeing a lot of that right now. The only other thing I'll add is that with a variable mortgage, there are two different types of, of kind of floating mortgage products. One of them, you can actually lock in the payment. So you also can have that lower payment from day one, but have some payment stability where your payment is not increasing as rates are increasing. Just that what goes on the principal would change as the interest rate climbs. You got it. But you as the borrower would have the ability that you could call the bank and increase your payments if you wanted to, but they wouldn't necessarily do that like organically as the rates are changing. Okay. And do you think there's going to be any changes so with a variable rate? Because you can qualify easier right now. Do you think that maybe there's going to be some policy changes? Because, you know, if rates keep going up, you're actually possibly in a bit more risk there as a, you know. Yeah. So the next meeting that the government has set is in December. So that's in a few months. We'll see what happens. But in December, that's really when they'll sit down and determine what happens with like the government stress test and are they going to change the benchmark rate for qualifying and will they change that so that it's the same for fixed and variable clients, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we see some changes there where it just evens out the qualifying for both sides, fixed and variable. Yeah, yeah, I see that makes sense. So if an investor is going to look at, you know, different property types, so not just detached, if they're going to look at maybe a condo or a townhouse or that kind of thing, is there different rules involved? Yes. So if we're going on the alternative side, oftentimes the lenders might ask for a larger down payment on a condo. Again, keep in mind that lenders, like they're risk-based, they're all risk-based. And so they might look at a condo as just having a little bit more volatility in the market. So, you know, in a market that's dropping, the condo's resale values could drop quicker than a single family home. And so that puts the banks in more of a vulnerable position. So they often like to ask for a higher down payment. This isn't always the case, but a lot of banks will ask for more down. So instead of it being say 20%, it could be 25%. They'll also be a little bit more specific on the property that they're lending on. So they'll often ask to review the condo documents to see, you know, is there any special assessments looming? You know, is this a building that is poorly managed? And if it is poorly managed, then obviously that could affect their borrower, the rest of the building and their financing. So, you know, they'll dig a little deeper. They'll also look at a lot of the alternative lenders, the age of the building. If it's a really old building built with even post-tension cables, you know, maybe they just won't finance it at all. So as far as the actual qualifying side of it, I wouldn't say that the investor or the borrower scrutinize more, but the property type can be. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then for townhouses, because it's kind of similar as well, how they would review a condo. It is similar. I think the thing to just keep in mind is that there's townhomes and there's row houses. So the row houses don't have condo fees and they usually don't have a condo board. So those could be looked at a little bit different or more like a duplex or single family home. Again, there's just less restrictions that could be involved with having a condo board or strata set up. As an investor myself, just personally, so kind of taking my mortgage broker hat off, 
I don't love investing in condos or in strata properties just because you might not have the final say of what happens with that property or with your monthly surplus of income or deficit for that matter if you know the condo fees are increasing. So I don't love those properties as an investor, but I don't want to discount them because there's also a lot of good opportunities for them as well. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. I think this is a good kind of intro into the STR. So, you know, because they've been so popular. So the short-term rentals, you know, if someone's looking at buying a short-term rental, what are your thoughts on purchasing one versus say a long-term rental? And then maybe we'll dive into some of the condo stuff with that too. Yeah. So short-term rentals, STRs, those are say your Airbnb, Verbo type of properties. So I guess first and foremost, if I was to present an application to the bank, suggesting that a client is wanting to buy this for that type of property, for a residential purchase, the banks are not interested in financing short-term rental properties. The banks do look at these as higher risk. Insurance companies look at them as higher risk. So you really need to know, I guess, who to call, where to go, what type of insurance company will insure these, you know, how you get lending on them. So it is a bit different for the lending perspective, but as an investor, I hold some short-term rentals in my own investment portfolio. And I actually really like the short-term rental aspect. They become really popular, like you mentioned, kind of across Canada and other places. There is some things that are kind of coming out. You might've heard of that, like Airbnb arbitrage. I don't know if you've heard of that term, but those are becoming popular. Can you you just explain that for the listeners? Yeah, each to your own. I don't want anybody who's listening to... uh, kind of point their finger at me for saying this, but um, <laughs> so an Airbnb arbitrage property is something where somebody will rent a property, not buy, and then they will re-rent to Airbnb clients. So say that I want to go and rent five different properties and I give full disclosure to the landlords and say, this is what I do. This is what my business model is. I'm going to turn around and essentially lease this property for a short-term rental. So the reason I don't love these is because you're basing your business model on a property that you do not own. Right. Mm. So in different provinces, I mean, Ontario versus Alberta versus BC, there's different requirements and restrictions for, you know, rental caps, you know, rental evictions, rental evictions, those things. So it's a tough market to be in, but the Airbnb arbitrage is a big thing right now. That's not really my jam. I'm more interested in actually purchasing the properties, owning the properties, and then really having a say in what happens. But the short-term rental market is interesting. And the reason that I personally like the short-term rental market is I've had unfortunately, my fair share of situations with long-term rentals with tenants that I maybe couldn't evict or I couldn't get out or they had subleased to somebody else or they had damaged the property, those type of things. To actually get those tenants out of a property is very difficult. So I've had to go through the court process and all of that. And you sometimes lose a bit of a handle on what happens to your property. So it's a long-term rental, say it's a year or longer for a lease. You know, how often are you actually going and checking on that property? A lot of people just want to rent it and then, you know, turn away and they don't want much to do with it. On the short-term rental side, I like them because of a maintenance perspective. Someone can come in, it's short, they're not signing a lease agreement. So, you know, they don't have more power than the landlord. And then, you know, if they're there for a week or a month. I mean, you can come and do your general maintenance on the property in between those bookings, right? So there's a bit of a benefit there for me as I call it an investor to have the short-term versus the long-term. Again, it's easier with the tenants a little bit in those terms, as far as not having to have that lease agreement and be bound to that. If the market picked up and 
you know, we had a wildly successful market, like say we've just had in Alberta, it gives you flexibility that maybe you just want to quickly rent or sell it. Maybe you want to unload it. Well, if you were in a longer term lease, it's a bit tougher to, you know, evict the tenants, you have to wait for their lease to be up. There's just more rules, right? So there also could be at that more risk with the short-term rentals, just seeing that they could be vacant for a longer period of time, depending on where you buy the short-term rentals. They could be more seasonal than more consistency. So there is a big difference, I think, from an investor. So again, if I'm kind of putting my investor hat on versus my mortgage broker hat on, but I would say that the financing, if you buy a property for a long-term rental, the banks will finance that. If you in the future decide to change that property into a short-term rental, really that's your business, but you have to finance the property as a long-term rental to start. I was going to ask, yeah, how do you kind of transition to that? I see. Okay. Yeah. Or you could, if you had your own owner occupied home that maybe you didn't want to sell and you were wanting to get into the investor pool and maybe you didn't want to engage into a long-term rent or tenancy and you really wanted to kind of dip your toe in and you wanted to try with the short-term rental market, it's a good way to try it and kind of flip your property into that, right? So you just have to make sure that you got good insurance and that you're giving full disclosure to the insurance companies for, you know, that this is in fact a short-term rental. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So some people out there have the short-term rentals in condos and then, you know, condo bylaws can change over time. Have you kind of ran into that or noticed that with condos? On the financing end? Absolutely. Yeah. They're really tough to, I think, for somebody who wants to do a short-term rental with a condo, because as you just said, the bylaws can change at any time. And if the bylaws change, then that vetoes, you know, your ability to rent. So if you're in the short-term rental game and you have bookings, for say, you know, two years in advance, and the condo board decides to change the bylaws within a month's notice, you really need to pivot pretty quickly and figure out what to do with all of those people who you've maybe taken deposits for, you've booked, right? So it's a bit iffy, but we are noticing on the financing side that some of the mortgage insurers have actually flagged properties that might have too many short-term rentals in them. And the insurers are just flat out saying, you won't finance in that building anymore. So if the insurer won't finance in a building, that really affects the resaleability and the market value of those condos. And so that's when the condo board would step in and maybe change the bylaw to say that they won't allow short-term rentals anymore. So we are seeing more and more of that. It is becoming pretty popular for the banks and insurers to really be requesting more documents. Like I said, the condo docs as well to see what's happening in the minutes and what's changing. Definitely some risks for an investor. If you've gone and purchased this condo based on the numbers of the income that's going to be generated on a short-term rental, and now you have to go to a long-term rental, you know, maybe you're making a third per month of cash flow, right? Like it could be a huge differential there. Exactly. It's the same thing with strata. So we see strata properties more in BC, but it's the same thing. So those would be say a single family home, but in a strata development and the strata still has a condo board and they still have bylaws. And even if a property is zoned specifically for short-term rentals, bylaws can override zoning. So that's just really important to know. You have to understand that if you're buying a property that is specifically zoned for short-term rental, but it's under a strata, that also can change. Yeah, yeah. I've been hearing that some cities are even like, uh, you know, they're kind of pushing Airbnb short-term rentals out because of the affordability, right? They're trying to combat affordability for people that are living locally, need a place to rent or live or buy, right? So 
Yeah, that and in some areas to protect the hotel industry, right? So, yeah. I mean, Canmore yeah. is a perfect example. We're seeing this now in BC and areas like, you know, Radium and Fairmont. So to protect those, actually they're zoning specific areas specifically for Airbnb and then taking it away from everywhere else, right? So yeah, you're 100% right. That's coming down the pipe more and more. Yeah. So I've got a question about mobile homes. So if you're an investor, there's actually two kind of unique situations. So if an investor is looking at maybe purchasing a mobile home or a home that has a wood foundation versus a, say a concrete foundation, is there anything they have to watch for there? So this is a good question because just over the last couple of weeks, we've seen some of the lenders ease up on the wood foundation situation. So when I say that, it's because a lot of the banks in the past and still now, they've not wanted to finance a wood foundation property. Again, they're just looking at longevity of will that property last inevitably or will there be more issues with the property if it's not on, say, a cement concrete foundation. So a lot of the banks just flat out wouldn't lend on it. We are seeing some of the lenders ease up now, so that's good. But I think anybody just has to be cognizant that even if you were pre-approved and you go out house shopping, you could be pre-approved as the covenant, so as the borrower, but that does not mean that you are pre-approved to buy any property, right? So that pre-approval could change if you buy a property that has a wood foundation or if you buy, say, a mobile home that's on leased land. So buying a mobile on lease land, so you're actually renting the land versus, say, a mobile that is maybe a brand new mobile permanently affixed to land that you own. There are different types of financing requirements for that. When you're buying a mobile that is not permanently affixed to the ground or it's on lease land, there's really only a few banks that do those well, like that lend on those well, and they are higher than mortgage interest rates. So there's just more restrictions. Again, it's more risk for the bank. They just are deemed as less marketable. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Like the moral of the story is that you just always want to have a condition of financing on any purchase that you buy, regardless of if you're pre-qualified and if you feel that you're pretty bulletproof, unless you have the capital to pay cash for that property, you'll want to make sure that you've got that condition in place. Yeah, for sure. So what about a house? So let's say it's more inner city and it's an older home, 100-year-old home, and there's not a lot of life left in that home. Is there anything that an investor should watch for? You know, maybe it's a $500,000, but primarily you're paying for the land, but there's still a home there. Yeah. So these are a bit of a catch-22. We see these weekly. So um, in our world or the appraisal world, we call this an EREL, so Estimated Remaining Economical Life of the Home. So as an example, if someone calls today and they have an offer on a property, it's inner city, say that it's a $650,000 purchase price, the home is 60 years old, but it's maybe currently rented. So it's in livable condition. So we could qualify, we could submit that application to the bank, qualify the person to buy that home, say 20% down. Everything could be great. It could be mostly land value, but it's livable. An appraiser could go to the property and they could deem the remaining EREL to be quite low. They could say, you know what, lots of land values so of the bank is secured that way, but the home itself, the dwelling really only has 20 years left. It was not well-maintained. It's not great. If the bank sees that a 20-year EREL, they will only lend an amortization of 15 years. So it's always five years less than EREL. Mm -hmm. So an appraisal is really important because it could kill a deal, not just because of value. So a lot of people will say, um, so right now, appraisers are backlogged. They are backed up. There's really hasn't been enough appraisers, especially in Calgary and area and Edmonton to keep up with the demand. And so when we're seeing financing conditions of say one week, we could probably turn around the approval in a week, but can the appraiser, 
And a lot of people will get up to that condition day and they might not have the appraisal back and they'll say, you know, my real estate agent has said, absolutely, this will appraise. So I'm going to waive the conditions. But it's not just about the value. It's what is that appraisal going to determine about the property, the shape of the home, the EREL of the home? Because if we have to go back to the bank and reduce the amortization, reducing the amortization increases somebody's mortgage payments, and that could affect affordability. But it could also affect if it's an investor, it could bump up the mortgage payments where then there could be a deficit every month from what your rental intake could be versus what your costs would be. So again, it's just really important to just have all your ducks in a row before you're waiving conditions because those inner city properties with the older homes, if they're well-maintained, great, but not all of them are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about raw land? So an investor sees raw land, you know, thinking about maybe putting an infill or something on there. What's a bank going to look for? That could be a whole other podcast, but um, <laughs> the construction financing is like one of our fortes. So I love a good draw mortgage. So if somebody wants to buy bare land and they say do not have a builder lined up, so they know that they want to eventually build, but right now they don't. So they're just buying, say, a lot inner city. We could do it with as minimum as 25% down if it's just bare land. Even if it has an old, say, like decrepit home and the home has no value, still going to be land lending 25% down. The interest rates are higher because, again, the bank looks at it as more risk. It's a less marketable property if there's no dwelling or an old dwelling. So interest rates, they're usually like prime plus 2%. So prime right now is 4.7. So the interest rates are up there, right, with the bare land lending. So if you want to do an actual construction mortgage and you have a builder lined up, we essentially would add two contracts together. So say somebody buys bare land for $500,000 and then they have a builder and the builder has a construction only contract for say a million dollars. We would add those two together for one five and we would do draws. And the first draw would actually be to buy that land on the possession day of the purchase contract. So there's all sorts of ways to do this. And it just really depends on, you know, how far through the process you are. Do you have a builder lined up or not? But there's a lot of different methods to finance construction financing or to build it itself. Well, maybe I'll have to have you on again. We'll just chat about that alone. <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> now, I, I just wanted to ask about if you want to buy a grow op. Now, I've heard that some banks or maybe they won't finance it at all. But let's say an investor there's a home that was a former grow up. It's been remediated. What are some of the challenges there for financing? Yeah, the grow up is like a swear word in the bank's world. They don't want to lend on them at all, even if they've been remediated and even if it's not showing on title or you have the health certificates. So some of these properties are flagged with, say, the insurer. So it maybe is not advertised on MLS because it doesn't need to be. So maybe we don't know. And again, this is a perfect example where the covenant of borrower themselves are solid, no issues, and they look at the property and the property from the outside looks amazing, but we submit the file to the lender or the insurer and, you know, it could come up that the property had been a previous grow op. So that lender has the right to step aside from the property and say, sorry, borrower, I'll finance you, but not this property, go find something else. And so, you know, you can often get the remediated grow ops for a good price. So they're attractive for investors, but the investor has to be cognizant of the resaleability component because if they can't turn around and sell it easily. So if like the masses can't qualify for it because the banks aren't interested, then they could be stuck with this property on their hands for the long term. So there are some banks that will finance the remediated grow ops with the health certificate, but it's by no means easy. So it is a challenge and it does have to be remediated. It has to have the air quality test 
results. It has to have all of the supporting documents, but it's not an easy approval by any means. So a question about Alberta. It's a, definitely a hot spot. There's a lot of you know outside investment coming in, but people purchasing investment properties. Any thoughts on why Alberta has been quite sought after? Yeah. So for investors, I mean, we don't have things like land title transfer taxes. So to buy in Alberta versus say BC or Ontario or some of the other provinces, there's less expense there. We only have you know, GST. It's a little bit cheaper that way. We have a lot of new immigration coming into Alberta. We've got a lot of jobs available in Alberta compared to some of the other provinces. Our affordability on houses is just a lot lower than other parts of the country. We haven't caught up there yet. You can buy you know, a single family home or a condo for, you know, in some places, half the cost of what it could be, say, in Toronto. So, you know, when you think about the new immigrants coming to Canada, you know, where will they land? Likely in a spot that is a little bit more affordable than something that is out of reach. For an investor, we also have high net rents here. So comparable to, say, Ontario, for a single family home, say, two bedroom, that purchase price could say be, let's pretend it's $500,000, but your net rents on that could be $2,900, $2,800 a month. Whereas for a $500,000 property in Toronto, your net rents could be $1,600, right? So you can see that an investor could net a higher return or higher surplus. So, you know, there's some differences there. If you're an investor and you are interested in hiring a property manager, whether it's for long-term or short-term rentals, usually the property management expenses are less expensive in Alberta. So again, it could be you know cheaper to have a property here. So I think all of those together, the word got out, and you know Calgary's been on sale for that reason. And interestingly enough, even in August, the last results that were posted, month over month and year over year, our net rents are still higher. Like every month they're still going up, despite the fact that interest rates have been increasing and that the market might have tapered off a little bit, our net monthly rental income that an investor can get is still going up month over month. Oh, that's interesting. That's good information. And so let's say if someone's living in Ontario and they've gone to a mortgage broker there and they've been pre-approved for their mortgage, and then now they're deciding, I'm not going to buy in Ontario. I'm qualified and I'm just going to find a realtor in Alberta and I'm going to basically purchase a house there. What kind of stuff would they have to be aware of? So generally in our industry, you have to be licensed in one province to the next. And so we're doing a lot of interprovincial files and co-brokering, it's called, with mortgage brokers, say, in Ontario, where they're sending us their clients or investors to buy here. Maybe it's not even an investor. A lot of it is essentially just people who are pushed out of the affordability realm in, say, Toronto and wanting to buy here. A perfect example, somebody in AHS, we've had a handful of people trying to transfer from, say, Ontario to Alberta to be with AHS because the pay per hour could be, you know, four or five dollars higher per hour in Alberta than it is there, right? So Alberta has been a really attractive place, not just for investors, but also for people to move and kind of get into home ownership and affordability. So you have to be working with somebody that is licensed to work in the province. But the other thing is that you do need to have employment or some form of income lined up. So a lot of people are assuming that they could buy in Alberta for an owner-occupied home. Say they live in BC or Ontario. First-time home buyers say it's 5% down. They're under the assumption that they can buy without issue. But the first question that the banks will ask is, well, what happens to your employment or your income as soon as you move? So if you are currently employed in another province and you're buying an owner-occupied home in Alberta, do you have the ability to work remote? 
will your job letter confirm that you have the ability? If it doesn't, do you have another job lined up already? If not, then you need to have those things sorted out before you move, or you might just need to have a decent sized down payment where we can do some sort of alternative lending and you know some higher kind of debt ratios, or maybe a co-signer involved to get into the home. And then once you're settled in the new province, then we could look at kind of restructuring that mortgage. But it's not just a carte blanche approval from one province to the next. There's other things that you need to consider with your income and employment when you're transitioning. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Lots of moving pieces there. Lots. And it's been a big part of Alberta's economy over the last little while. Right now we're, you know, end of August and we're still getting at least, you know, two to three calls a week from, you know, Toronto investors or people in Toronto moving to Alberta. For sure. So with an investor, if they're looking at maybe the appeal of buying, say, a brand new build and a brand new home, less maintenance, probably more appeal for the tenant. Is there any sort of things they got to watch for on the financing side for a new build? Yeah. So when we do a pre-approval, we can really only hold interest rates for 120 days. That's four months. So if somebody comes back to us and they're buying a property, the possession date really has a lot to do with the interest rates. And so if it's say a property that is a brand new build, but it's a spec home. So that would be a home that's already started and maybe the possession will end up being in four months. That's perfect. The mortgaging is the same. Interest rates can be secured. So really no changes. But if you're buying a property where, you know, it's a brand new build, they haven't started construction or possession is say a year or a year and a half down the road, the interest rates will be higher. There's a few banks that will lock rates in for an 18 month build period, but it's at a surcharged rate. So the banks do that because that's how they hedge their money. They don't know where the rates will be in say 18 months from now. So they will do the approval and they will hold a rate, but it's generally higher. Now, closer to possession, we can shop that rate around again if rates have dropped, but if rates have increased, then of course that rate would be secured. But the other factor is that, you know, a lot of the banks, if there's been any material changes to the build price, the purchase price of the home, and usually there is because when you do a new build, you usually have upgrades or allowances that you're kind of adding throughout the build. So if there's any changes to the price or bigger material changes, the bank does have the right to requalify you. Now, there are some banks that won't requalify you, but generally speaking, we have to prep the client that this could be a thing, meaning that if we have an approval today and your possession isn't until 18 months from now, and you had a job change or job loss, or you've acquired new debt or new property within this 18 month period, that could completely change your feasibility for financing. So there's just things that you need to consider there from the financing end of it when you're buying new bill versus pre-existing. And then from an investor standpoint, if you are looking to buy a new build property, like you said, it, you could have a maybe an easier time to rent it because less maintenance and the prospective tenant could see that it's a brand new home. So, you know, it looks nice. It's appealing. It's new. But the other thing you have to consider as the actual owner or the landlord is you're buying a property that has usually no sod. The property hasn't settled yet. So usually you don't sod it right away. Maybe there's no deck. There's maybe no fence. So those are all extra expenses and costs that you'll have to put into that property after the fact, if the builder is not doing that for you. And that could also be a negative to tenants. For sure. Yeah. hundred percent. And what about, you know, a builder puts in say an escalation clause, you know, maybe the property's 12 months out and we know that the inflation, every, all this stuff, there's a labor shortage. And so you're a buyer, maybe you're not even an investor, you're just a buyer and you lock that house in at 650. And now 12 months later, 
the actual price is 750. No, this is a super good question. And so these escalation clauses have been, you know, in my 20 years, pretty new. I mean, they've been around for a long time, but you don't see them often, except in this market, right? We've now been seeing a lot of them. And I'll tell you, if the bank reads the fine print of a purchase contract, which they generally do when they see an escalation clause, they will approve the file conditional to the builder removing the escalation clause. So the banks are not comfortable with that. Half the time, they won't even underwrite the file or even give the approval up front until that is removed. So an escalation clause can be written in many different ways or facets, depending on the builder or the contract. But a lot of the time, it's here's your fixed price. However, if our prices go up, you have to pay the increase or we have a first right of refusal to buy the house back from you. So that's usually what it is. The banks don't like that. And you know what? A lot of clients don't like that because if they're going to be investing their time and energy in building a home to only know that that price will have changed, say, months before possession, you know, a lot of them just are walking away from those purchases. Okay, interesting. So that's good then. So really the client is being protected and it's kind of driven from the bank policy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, the clients are being pretty savvy lately, just knowing what's happening with interest rates increasing, qualifying constraints, cost of lumber going up, shortage of trades. So people are being, you know, pretty smart. Oh, that's good. So with interest rates increasing, obviously there's downsides for investors and how does that correlate to a tenant? Yeah, good question. So for an investor, interest rates go up, mortgage payments go up. That means that your profitability margin on a month to month basis or year over year could reduce. So how does that correlate to the tenant? Well, landlords asking for higher rents. If they're not asking for higher rents now because maybe they got in at a rate, you know, 2%, when that mortgage is up for renewal in a couple of years, is that mortgage interest rate going to be higher and is the payment going to be higher? So I think we just have to be careful with that. As I mentioned right now in Calgary month over month, it's been a 7.3% increase in monthly rent for a two bedroom home and a condo is just below that year over year. It's a 24% increase. This is in Calgary, but the national average is up too. And it's pretty close to that. That is a huge increase. If that continues to go up, that's pretty scary for a tenant at the same time with inflation, that means costs are going up all over the place, but also we're seeing wages increase. So hopefully if there are costs that are rising on the housing front, somebody's wage is also going up. If you've got a tenant that has a fixed income, then, you know, that is scary, but we do have to know that on the landlord side of it, there's actually programs available. And again, this is probably for another podcast, but just like CMHC, that's the mortgage insurance company that protects the bank for the down payment. There's also coverage for landlords for rent coverage. So, you know, I think we're going to see that program be utilized a lot more in the future as net rent start to increase. The other thing that I think tenants have to be cognizant of is as landlords margins start to potentially decline because interest rates are going up, mortgage payments are going up. People who might have had a property manager before might not have the margin to have a property manager anymore. So on a single family home, say it's a long-term rental, usually it's about 10%, maybe 8% property management fee. Like property managers might have to start reducing that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I could see a lot of landlords just not using property managers anymore. They might just say the margin's not there to pay them. So then the landlord's handling it. So then you have to be careful. Does the landlord have time to handle it? What are they going to do if there's you know a leak or a problem or whatever the case is? Because a lot of investors, they're busy people. Maybe they shouldn't actually be managing the property. So I think we could see a lot of property managers getting cut out if the margin isn't there, which I don't love that for the tenant side of it. Yeah, for sure. That's a really good point. 
Can we talk about creative financing? So for somebody that wouldn't qualify, say, for a traditional mortgage, what are some options they might have? So the alternative lending is a really good option. Even if we're talking, say, if we're talking specifically for investors, not just a short-term or long-term rental, but let's say it's for a flip. There's a couple of our, well, one specific partner of ours, their lender, they have an amazing flip program. You can buy a home with as little as $10,000 down. You have to have the money for the renovations to do the renos, and you have to have money to cover the monthly costs until you flip the property. But so when I say 10,000 down, I'm not talking 10%, I'm talking $10,000 down. Wow. So yeah, the interest rates are higher. There is a fee, but it's meant to be short term. So kind of in and out for a couple months, do some cosmetic improvements to the home and flip it. So when you buy the home with $10,000 down, we have to look at the aftermarket value. So after the renovations have done, what is the value at that time? So the ARV after repair yeah. value. Yeah. You got it. And so if that number is attractive, like is positive, and that's also factoring in the carrying costs, you know, which is everything from insurance, real estate commissions when you sell the whole nine yards. But if you're in a positive number, then you could do it with $10,000 down. If the numbers aren't quite that attractive, then maybe the lender will say, okay, 20,000 down, right? But we almost have to look at it on a per property basis, right? So give us the MLS listing, give us the quick list of what rentals or improvements you would do, like just in an email format. It doesn't have to be actual quotes from a contractor, but a quick list and we can quickly run the numbers and say, here's what we're determining, what your CMA, like your aftermarket renovation value will be for resale. Here's what we look at profitability as, and yes, go ahead, write the offer. The lender will even say you could go in unconditional as long as you don't pay over X amount. So that would be the only way that I would say to go in with an unconditional offer. But you can even go in unconditional. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's at your own risk, right? But the lender will do that. I mean, should you get an inspection? Sure. Should you do your homework due diligence? Sure. <laughs> if they'll take a finance condition or any other condition, great. But the lender will actually give you that go ahead once they vetted the property and they've seen, you know, the client that you could do that. So I've got you know a handful of clients who are flippers that it's a very quick process. I just get, they say, Hey, this came up on the market. It's a foreclosure or otherwise here's the MLS, here's the rentals we want to do. And usually within a 24 to 48 hour period, we can get right back and say, here's the math on this, go ahead. So that's a really cool program. And then otherwise just the alternative lending, they have so many ways that you can do non-conforming mortgage products. If you have a good size down payment, you know, if a file makes sense, if we can paint a picture for a good exit strategy. So, you know, short-term lending just to get you from A to B. So I think as long as somebody is really working with a broker or a brokerage that really has, I guess, the knowledge of not just the A lending, but the B lending and alternative as well, then really you could have a good partner with using that broker for all types of financing, not just your, you know, first time home or owner-occupied house. Okay. Do they review kind of like a client profile? Is there a relationship that has to happen? Because let's say you're a brand new person, never completed a flip before. It's going to feel like it's obviously higher risk than someone that's been doing it a long time. So we'll do an application on RN, just like it's a normal, you know, pre-app that we're doing. It very low docs that we ask for, you know, we need a notice of assessment, make sure that no one's owing back taxes to Revenue Canada. And we'll look at the application. They don't have to income qualify. They don't have to have stellar credit, but the property has to make sense. So this flip program, it's really based on the property. And you're right. I mean, does this person know what they're doing? Well, if this is a person that has a full-time job that has never flipped or done a reno in their life, that is planning to do all the renovations themselves. When we're looking at the calculators of their performer, we really want to look at the numbers and say, there's no chance this person can be in and out in a month. So maybe in that scenario, 
we would say, you should really have a contractor to do this, or we're going to have to say that this will be done for four or five months. That's cutting into your profits. In turn, it makes it less profitable. Maybe you need to put more money down, right? So we do have to look at those. Some of my clients, they'll come to me every two months to do one of these flips. I don't have to do a new application every time. I don't get a new credit bureau every time. I don't get new docs every time. The lender and the client now have a bit of a relationship knowing that these properties are getting turned around quickly and that they obviously know what they're doing. Yeah, that's good. And what kind of interest rates? Just I know it's going to vary and it's different. Can you just throw out a couple numbers? For that, for that program, it's a higher rate. If you're just doing $10,000 down, you're looking at about 15%. If you can do 20000 down or 30000 so the rate goes down with every slight increment of down payment. So, you know, you could get into this at, say, maybe 9%, 10%, and then a fee as well. But when you actually factor in that you could be in and out of this flip, maybe ideally in a few months, that interest rate, it sounds high. It's actually not bad when you're looking at the APR, so the annual percentage rate, when you can get in and out. And just keep in mind that the lender is factoring those fees in when they're doing the whole review to make sure that you're profitable. And if they don't think you'll be profitable, they'll tell you. They'll just say, we're not supporting this flip. Let's look at the next one. Oh, that's great. Awesome information. So the government policies always change. And just wondering if you could speak about possibility of, say, like a house flipping tax, uh, that kind of thing with Alberta. Have you heard anything? Yeah. So it is proposed in April, the new budget came out. So it is proposed that as of January 1st, 2023, so on January or after, that this new flipping tax will come out. So right now, an investor, you would be, as far as capital gains are considered, you would actually be charged 50% of the gains from the sale. So that's what's taxed. That's the current policy now. Going forward though, like you'll be just taxed on your full profits if you're buying and selling, say within a year. And that's if the government can prove that you purchased this property for immediate resale. There are some exclusions. So if you bought a property within the first year and there's been a death or a divorce, something like that, then that is your immediate call it out and you would not have to pay those taxes. So kind of as of now, it's still proposed, but I have not heard anything suggesting that this will not be going ahead. So this is something that I think, again, people will have to factor that in. If you're an investor, you'll have to factor in those taxes a little bit more cautiously than you were before for what your after profit is, or honestly, just buy property before January 1st, get it on the books now. Yeah, for sure. With the market pulling back, we know that, uh, you know, sales are starting to, especially if you're, you're above the 500,000, right? It's especially in Calgary, it has pulled back. What are some challenges that you see kind of on the horizon and maybe some opportunities over the next 12 months? So a lot of the, you know, clients that we had say pre-qualified a year ago or say, you know, January, February this year, a lot of those poor people, they were pre-approved and had great interest rates held and they might've had 10, 15, 20 offers on places and just couldn't secure something. Things were, you know, competing offers going over list, or they just got a little bit pushed out of their affordability range with the prices going up. A lot of those people now we're seeing come full circle and now they've been able to find property. So that's been really nice to see that a lot of these people who were serious buyers had to put the brakes on, but they've now been able to purchase. And I hope that that trend continues. I don't have you know, a crystal ball. I really can't say for sure what will happen. I really don't think that our market in Calgary specifically will be rapidly declining in value. I think that we'll stabilize. I don't think we'll see as many you know, over list 
sales competing offers over the next little while. But I think we've seen a correction and I think things will stay relatively stable. So that is my thought. I don't think we're going to have the big price reductions like say Toronto has had or BC has had. But with us stabilizing, and even if we have a bit of a decline, really we're just adjusting to say, call it pre-COVID levels, even higher than pre-COVID. So I don't think we're going to have a big decline beyond that. This was not a big boom because of oil and gas or something like that. This was you know, a bit unprecedented. And even with interest rates having gone up, we're still seeing a lot of activity. A lot of people are still needing mortgages no one's happy about the rate increases, but we're still busy. People are still buying. Investors are still buying. It's cooled a little bit, but I think that's also attributed to the summer, right? A lot of people, this is maybe the first real summer that a lot of people can travel a little bit more at ease where we've been out of COVID. So I do think that once the fall hits, I think that the fall market will pick back up again. I'm hopeful that inflation will cool sooner than later and that interest rates will decline again. The biggest thing that I can say is that even though the variable interest rates have been going up, our fixed rates have actually dropped over the last month. So it is a misconception that as variable rates go up, fixed rates also go up and vice versa. The two are based on different things. Fixed rates are based on daily you know, bond yields in the bond market. The variable rate is based on the benchmark overnight rate, our prime lending rate in Canada. And so I think you just, as an investor or buyer, you have to have your ear to the ground and ask a lot of questions to really know what's going on with the interest rates and the market to determine if it's a good time to buy. For investors, I do think it's actually a really good time to buy. We just talked about that potential house flipping tax January 1st. When we see the market cool, when we see the summer happen and there's fewer people around, you can get usually better deals, better prices. On the flip side, I do still think we have a lot of real estate professionals or owners who have not adjusted their expectation on price yet. So they're maybe still listed overpriced. And when asked to provide their comps, they're providing comps from say February, which we're not in February's market. So I do think that we have a bit of an opportunity here to get a good price and a good deal, but I really don't think that we're going to be dropping significantly. I don't see that happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. For sure. I think people do have to, you know, not everybody, but it's been such a dramatic change from February till now that there is a expectation that has to also be adjusted, right? Exactly. Yeah. Great information. So I'm going to hit you with a few quick questions, um, a little bit more on the personal side. So if someone were to Google you, what's something they won't find out about you on Google? Oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> you won't find out much about me on Google because I'm not much of a social media person okay. anyways. Um, okay. That's probably a good thing. But I think I could tell you that my three pet peeves, I hate disorganization. I hate following instructions and I hate small talk. So if you call me, just don't small talk me. Um, there's some people that can talk about the weather for 15 minutes. I can't handle that. So give me a good latte and a good conversation and I'm all ears. You're all ears. Good to know. Okay. And what's your favorite book? You know what? I don't do books. I'm not a book person. Um, it's got to be uh, something about mortgages, obviously. <laughs> or investing. No, I don't think I've ever finished a book in my entire life, but I love podcasts. I love, you know, listening to things on the go. Um, yeah. I can tell you that a great podcast for anyone is called On Purpose by Jay Shetty. It's amazing. It's got a lot of good stuff about, you know, mindset and just day-to-day -day life things that I think everybody could benefit from. I'll have to check it out. I do a lot of driving and that's what I do. I just consume content, you know, a podcast, that kind of stuff when I'm driving all the Me time. Me too. Multitask. Yep, exactly. So what kind of things or activities do you do with your downtime? You know what? My downtime from the mortgage brokering side, a lot of it is actually on the investing side with that, just like real estate that my husband and I own. 
you know, commercial properties and short-term rentals, long-term rentals. So that's a bit of a hobby of both of ours. So we do that. Love family time and honestly, anything to do with good food and good wine. I'm all over. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks so much, Heather, for joining me today. This has been so much information packed into this podcast. I'm sure people will be reaching out to you to get, you know, more information. And for people to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Visit our website. It's mmgmortgages.ca or our company has a Facebook page or Instagram page. So anything that anyone wants to kind of chat about, feel free to find us there. Um, and a couple other little tidbits that leave you with for any kind of other individual looking at rent info. There's a really cool app that some people might have heard is called live.rent. That's it's an interactive app for tenants and for investors. Really cool. It's got so much data for somebody who's wanting to be um, like to rent and as a landlord, even if you have a property manager. The other really cool website that I use often, it's called Door Insight. That will tell you it's a national website and you can type in your address and it will tell you like what you can expect for rental income on a property. So when you're looking at property values, Honest Door is a good one too. But I would say Door Insight is a really cool one for investors. That's really good information for sure. Yeah. They have that right at your fingertips, right? It's uh, yeah. so handy for sure. Yeah. Well, I can share more. If anybody ever uh, wants to chat about investing or otherwise, feel free to just reach out and happy to share anything I know. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent. I also have a certification as a master home inspector. I'm currently partnering on a property flip in Calgary with Shirley Evans, who I consider to be a professional property flipper. Shirley has a wealth of real estate knowledge. We're going to be offering Eventbrite meetups at the property. So if you're in the Calgary area, we'd love for you to stop by and check it out. If you'd like to reach out to me directly, my number is 587-893-2272. You can follow me on Instagram at peckfordcorey or check out my website, and that's just coreypeckford.com. Plus, you can also join our new Facebook group, Calgary Real Estate Investing Group. That's Craig for short. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.